The miracle of Resurrection Sunday is grounded as much or more than other events in the ancient world in history. When we rejoice, proclaim, confess, He is risen, we are leaning into eyewitness accounts that come from the most scrutinised documents in the world, the Gospels of the New Testament. Don't you just love that section of the story from John's Gospel where, before the disciples have realised the significance of the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene encounters Jesus in the garden. Speaking with Jesus, she is overjoyed and she returns to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. John's Gospel goes on to recount the risen Jesus' appearance to other disciples and eyewitnesses. John, initially writing to people in his own time, is saying, I know this claim about the resurrection of Jesus defies belief, but come and talk to me and I can introduce you to people who saw Jesus back from the dead with their own eyes. But it is the eyewitness testimony of someone else that struck me this holy week. There's a detail in John 19 verses 31 to 37 that references a man who saw one of the soldiers pierce the dead Jesus' side with a spear. The passage says that because the Jewish leaders did not want bodies left on the cross during Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies taken down. Verse 32 says, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may believe. Perhaps you've heard this passage preached on Good Friday in the past, where the physiological significance of the sudden flow of blood and water has been mentioned because it is medical proof that by this point Jesus was truly dead. And this is a significant point. But I think that this moment has a whole other level of significance to it for the writer of the Gospel, John. John's Gospel, it is often noted, is particularly rich in symbolism. And one of the most important symbols he uses is water. If you think about the stories that you might know from John's Gospel that involve water, perhaps you'd think of John 4 where Jesus is travelling through Samaria when he stops at Jacob's well. A Samaritan woman arrives at the same well and Jesus asks her for a drink. The Samaritan woman says to Jesus, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? because Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. Verse 10 goes on, But Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman replies, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where will you get this water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here, 
Jesus speaks of water as the spring of eternal life. This is not unlike John 7, where during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And on the final day of the feast, it says that he stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The symbolic nature of this language, that we could drink from a person, might be strange for us as 21st century Westerners. John was not initially writing to us. He was writing to first century Palestinian Jews. And these people's understanding of the world around them was largely formed in symbols, the lexicon of which was their scriptures. So when they heard about living water, they would have heard the echo of their scriptures, the great river of Genesis, the river of the Psalms, as well as the one that was spoken about by the prophets. Prophets like Ezekiel, who saw a vision of a spring bubbling up from the foundations of the temple, feeding a river of blessing, nourishing and healing that flowed out to water the world. This is the river that John sees again in his revelation of the end of history when God establishes his rule and reign on earth in fullness. Revelation 22 says, The angel showed me, John, the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and that of the Lamb. Through the middle of the streets of the holy city it flowed. On either side of it grew trees of life whose leaves would heal the world. There is a lot of evidence that Jesus used the symbolism of the Old Testament in ways that his disciples really struggled to interpret. There were so many ways in which he, as the Messiah, was not what his Jewish disciples expected. In the second chapter of John, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says something that, according to John, did not make sense to his disciples until after Jesus had been raised from the dead. This moment takes place just after Jesus had cleared the money changers from the temple, when John says that some of the Jews came to challenge his authority to do that. Jesus responded, destroy this temple and in three days again, in, and in three days, I will raise it again. Of course, these three days refer to those we commemorate this Easter weekend. John and the disciples came to realize that Jesus is God's presence on earth. Jesus is the temple. That's why in John's revelation of the holy city at the end of history, there is no temple but Jesus himself. On that Easter weekend, that first Easter weekend, John saw the body of his Lord hung up on a tree on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And for him, that body was the temple. How strange, how wonderful. For John, when, this, when the spear pierced his dead Lord's side, he saw not just the lifeblood run out of him, but the very water of life mixed in with the blood the water of life bubbling up from within the temple, flowing down from that high place out into the world like Ezekiel's river of life. How strange, how wonderful. This might be an unusual Resurrection Sunday message, but this is an unusual Resurrection Sunday. We are not meeting with each other like we normally would. We're not meeting like Mary and Jesus did in the garden. There's no feast for us with our extended families. The world, in many ways, is not celebrating or rejoicing. 
In fact, people are mourning, mourning the loss of loved ones, mourning the loss of their livelihoods. In many places in the world, people are putting their very lives at risk to line up for basic provisions. In the face of this, the message of the empty tomb is as powerful as ever. But this Easter, I'm finding it difficult to separate from the message of the cross. It seems to me that this Easter especially, these things must be remembered together. The empty tomb and the cross, the cross and the empty tomb, the draining life blood and the bubbling spring of the water of life flowing together. I think Paul puts this all so succinctly in Romans 6, 3 to 11, where he says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death, like in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. But anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in some real ways, our world is bleeding and dying bank accounts and retirement funds are bleeding. People are dying. The world needs to know that there is a God who shared and shares in their suffering. It and we in it need the cross as the payment for our sin. As Paul says, we need to be crucified with Christ so that our sin might be done away with and rendered powerless. The mystery that John grasped is that with the blood of Christ's death flows the water of life for the world. In this sense, it was the temple sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The mystery that Paul grasped was that as we share in Christ's suffering and death, so we share in his resurrection life. Yes, his tomb was empty, and so shall ours be. Yes, he is the temple, the presence of God in the world. And by our union with him, we are a part of it. And yes, there is a river which flows from his side and down through our lives so that it might flow out into the world. God bless you this Resurrection Sunday of 2020. Charlie and the team are going to lead us in one more song and then Sherilyn's going to round out our Sunday celebration this morning by finishing the reflection that she started on Good Friday as a kind of benediction. Hey, be blessed. I'll see you soon.